is the word of God written to his people in all times and all ages and all places. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, well, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter into him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that your sheep would hear your voice and know it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps one of the conveniences, I think, that we most overlook in our lives today is that of, of light bulbs. It's one of those things that, that we live with every day. There's a light pretty much anywhere. There's one in our pocket, in our phones. There's one uh, everywhere in every room. There's a light switch on every wall. There's lights in our vehicles. There's lights everywhere that we go. You know, at just the, the flip of a switch, we're able uh, to, to make darkness become light, in a sense. And one of the things that we forget is that up until the late 19th and mostly in the 20th century, light was not nearly as accessible uh, as it is today, especially after sundown. You know, for the overwhelming majority of human history, uh, light has been something that you needed to do everything, and the only time you could get that light was between sunup and sundown, from, from morning to dark. And then at dark, you went to sleep. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Thanks to Thomas Edison, that's changed. Uh, but it's important to remember 
as far as light goes and light bulbs and, and man-made light, that the usefulness of a light bulb hinges, hinges on its connectedness to a power source. A light or a lamp in a room uh, couldn't be more useless if it was unplugged and not connected to electricity. Right? There's not a more useless thing in a room uh, than a light bulb or a light that's not connected to its source of power. A light bulb cannot give off light of its own ability. It needs power. It needs electricity. It needs to be connected to something in order to function as it should. Power or ability or its, its, its capacity to help or to aid us is not an intrinsic quality that it has of itself. It's not something that comes natural to itself. It relies on another thing. That The power, the usefulness of the light bulb is not intrinsic, but derivative. It derives that power, that electricity from something else. And in the same way that, that a light or a light bulb does not have power or electricity intrinsic to itself, we find out here at the outset of our passage that Jesus' disciples, that their spiritual ability, right, the disciples' spiritual ability is not a thing that is intrinsic to themselves. Right? They don't have the natural ability to carry on, to carry out the ministry of Jesus in and of themselves. And we kind of catch on to this as Jesus is coming back down from the Mount of Transfiguration in verse 14. Peter, James, John, Jesus coming back, joining the rest of the disciples. And when they get there, there's a crowd already there. There's a crowd already assimilated at the bottom of the mountain. And so uh, Jesus and his three buddies, they approach the other disciples. Uh, and the first thing that Jesus picks up on is that the scribes are arguing with the Pharisees. But the crowds, you know, they're ecstatic. Jesus is back. This is the one that we've come to see. They, they love Jesus. Jesus, uh, he's the one that, that, that they've attached their hearts to. They're glad to see him. But Jesus kind of looks past all of that, and he looks straight to the scribes, and he asks them there in verse, uh, verse 16, what are you arguing about them, with them? He's asking the, the scribes, what are you arguing about with these, my disciples? And for the first time, I think, in the whole gospel, maybe, uh, the scribes don't even have a chance to answer for themselves. <laughs> Someone else answers for them. Uh, and it's not a likely suspect. It's the guy who's actually come asking for help. It's the father who's in distress because his son uh, has a condition, has something going on that he himself can't help. And so the father speaks up in verse 17. He said, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. So as we just kind of take a moment and look at this man who is in distress, this father whose, whose child uh, is oppressed by a demon, is a man who is in panic a man who is, who, is, who is in pieces. There's something going on with him that he himself can do nothing about. 
It makes, it's a demon apparently makes the child where he can't talk, where he can't hear. Uh, it takes over control of the child's body, throws him down, makes him foam at the mouth, makes him grind his teeth, it stiffens his body. And perhaps, again, the most uh, perplexing part of the situation for the dad is that he can't help his son. There's, there's nothing that he can do. And so he brings him to the only place that he knows of where someone who can actually help can help. He brings them to Jesus. But Jesus isn't there. Right? Jesus is up with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and showing himself to be the Lord of glory. But nevertheless, Jesus' disciples are there, right? And, and remember, back in Mark chapter 6, they've done this before. Jesus sent them out, right, to cast out demons and to preach the word of God, to, to actually carry on and carry out the ministry of Jesus apart from them. They've done this before. So surely, right, surely they can do it now. Jesus' disciples, they, they should be able to help for sure. And the disciples are thinking, well, since we've done this before, surely, surely we can do it again. Right? We, we, we were just doing this a few chapters ago. We can, we can help. There's something that we can do. But there we have that, that sort of false presumption. That presumption that, that ability in the past automatically means ability in the present. Right? We're all pretty good at, at assuming on our own gifts, our own intellects, right? our own talents, our own ability, our own selves. You know, just, we're, I'm, I'm pretty good at that. I'll be fine. I'll be able to do it. The disciples are thinking the same exact thing. We've cast out demons before. We've done all this. Bring him, yeah, bring him here. I'll help. I can, I can handle the situation. We kind of look at them and like, you guys, why would you say that? Like, why would you do that? But we do, it the same. we do the same thing all the time, right? right? I, did, I, did, I did well on that last test without studying. Remember that time when I, I didn't have to study? I just knew it and, you know, I made like a 95. You know, I'll just do that again. It'll happen. It'll just magically happen. Or, or maybe, you know, for, for, for the businessmen in the room or, or whoever, I had a really good year last year. You know, I've just really got this thing figured out. So it's just going to happen again this year. If you've lived life for very long, you, you've figured out that assuming on your own abilities uh, often leads to turmoil in the end. And that's pretty much exactly what happens. We find out that, that ability in the past does not mean ability in the present because the father states the point plainly he's presenting the facts the disciples could not cast out the demon uh, the father says he says it explicitly they were not able right they didn't have in the present the ability to do what they had done in the past and the particular word here kind of stresses the factuality of their failure Right, here are the facts. They were not able. They, they just simply don't have the capacity. They don't have the ability to perform the exorcism. It's a fact. They, they can't do it. And so we kind of come back to the same situation. The, the disciples here are as useless, as helpless as the Father himself. They've been no aid to the situation. In fact, they probably only made the situation worse. And there's a lesson to be learned here from the nine disciples that are left here carrying on the, in a, in a, failing to carry out the ministry of Christ. There's a lesson to be learned from them, but there's a lesson that's, that's also to be learned for us. 
And it's that spiritual ability is not an intrinsic quality to Jesus' disciples. Kind of like the ability to give off light is not an intrinsic quality to a light bulb. It needs something else. It needs electricity. It needs a power source. Spiritual ability is not something that Christians can take for granted. It's not something that's natural to us. And before we start throwing darts, like, who is this associate pastor you guys have hired? He doesn't have, have a theology of the Holy Spirit. Well, yes, I know that the Holy Spirit indwells believers. I know that, that he empowers and strengthens and enables believers uh, to, to fight sin and do all sorts of things. But that's, that's my point exactly. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us. It's the Holy Spirit who strengthens us. The disciples in and of themselves are unable to do what is required to perform the exorcism on the boy. And the same thing applies to our Christian lives. Right? We are not chosen in Christ of our own ability. We are not regenerated of our own ability, as we were just talking about in Sunday school this morning. Right? God is the one who effectually calls his people and regenerates them. We are not given faith and repentance of our own ability. We are not justified of our own ability. We are not adopted by God of our own ability. So then why do we so often, or why do we tend so often, to approach sanctification, the process of growing in holiness in and out of the shallow wells of our own ability. Why is it so often that when we find ourselves so attracted to this or that particular sin, that, that instead of running to Christ, we instead just life coach ourselves, do better. You, know, you can do better. When we discover that we've developed this or, or that attraction or addiction or sinful attitude, lots of times we just say to ourselves, let me just remove all the opportunities to, just, to, to, to partake of that particular sin, and therefore I won't deal with it anymore. Right? Let me just get rid of every opportunity to get angry. Let me get rid of every opportunity to, to, to be tempted with this particular temptation, or let me get rid of every opportunity... Uh, uh, to, to, to act on this particular addiction. Let me just remove all those opportunities. And that's not a, that's not a bad practice, right? That's, that's actually, I think, a biblical practice, right? It, it's to, to remove those things is fruits of repentance, but it's not the only fruit of repentance. In, in other words, there's more to be done. It is a good thing to cut myself off from opportunities to sin. Yes, it is a good thing to do that. But if sin is rooted in my heart and not in my hands or my brain or my tongue, then that only goes so far. If I only remove the opportunity to do those things, then I haven't really gotten to the root of the issue. I'm trying to, to, to break the blooms off the branches I'm not actually removing the ugly, bad fruit tree stump and all. The point is, is that if we are spiritually enable in and of ourselves, then we must lean in to the strength of the Holy Spirit to fight. 
Not just the outside, right? Just not, not just the, the brain, the hands, and the tongue, but the heart, right? I need, I need something else. I need, I need the Spirit to, to get in and to do work down here. And so as we just consider that truth for just a moment, it, it may be healthy to, to ask ourselves, you know, just to kind of quickly take a spiritual inventory and maybe pick it back up later in our thoughts. But am I, I mean, just ask ourselves, am I still struggling with the same particular sin that I was five years ago or ten years ago? And the answer to that question may be yes. And it may be that particular sin that, that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. But it may be, it may be that we've just been trying to, to, to cut off the, the blossoms, the blooms on the bad fruit tree. And we haven't really dealt with the root. We haven't really sought the Lord's help to get at my heart. That's the problem. The problem is not my, my hands and my brain and my tongue. The problem is my heart that loves all those things so much instead of Christ. I need Him to help me fix that. So it's obvious from the disciples' failure here that, that spiritual ability is not a thing that is natural, that is intrinsic to us. But it is a thing that's natural and intrinsic to Christ Jesus, which is where the narrative kind of shifts at this point. And so picking up, uh, picking up in, verse, um, in verse 17, or I'm sorry, in verse uh, 18, Jesus kind of responds to the failure of the disciples uh, in, uh, might we say, mild frustration. Uh, in verse 19, Jesus answers the disciples, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Uh, his two, two rhetorical questions here, obviously pointing to the soon approaching expiration date of his ministry. And the disciples just kind of failing, not, not getting with the program. Okay, this is how we do ministry. This is, this, is, uh, this is how we carry out the ministry of Christ whenever he's gone. They just aren't getting it. But that, might we say, mild frustration quickly changes, I think, to compassion. Because the end of verse 19, what does Jesus say? He doesn't walk away in frustration. He doesn't... Uh, leave the situation for the disciples to kind of fix on their own. No, he's compassionate. He, he cares for the father. He cares for the little boy. And so what does he say? Bring him to me. Bring him here. I can help. And so the boy, possessed by the demon, is brought to Jesus and, and sees Jesus, and immediately the demon causes the boy to, to, to throw a fit. And again... Uh, we and everyone that's present at this event are reminded of, of just how terrible of a situation this is, just how distasteful and just how, uh, just how bad the situation at hand is. And so Mark picks up on many of the same verbs that he used above in verse 18, but he also adds to that, right? The spirit convulsed the boy, he fell on the ground, he rolled about, he foamed at the mouth, but even more so are we drawn into the, just the, the terrible aspect of what's going on by Jesus' inquisition of the Father. Jesus, perfect pastor, chooses this time to ask questions about patient history. I, I don't know 
Doesn't seem like the best time to me, but, but he knows. And so he asked the father, how long has this been happening? How long has this been going on? And so the father responds in verse 21. We learn a couple of new things here. Number one, it's been happening since he's a child. And number two, it's nearly cost him his life. These things communicate the, the overwhelming reality that, that this situation is dark. This boy's not just, uh, just not played tricks on by these demons. They're going for his life. These demons want to destroy him. And so, in answering those questions and re familiarized by the darkness of the situation, the father also poses a request. And I love how the father is just brutally honest. From beginning to end, he's brutally honest, right? He's like, the disciples weren't able, and now he's, he's going to say, uh, Jesus, uh, I kind of doubt your ability to do this. Right? The, the father says out loud what we're barely willing to mumble under our breath and certainly wouldn't say to Jesus to his face. <laughs> but he doubts Jesus' ability. The father says, but, but if you can, if you're able, have compassion on us and help us. You know, the father brought his, again, brought his helpless self and his, his turmoiled son uh, to the only place that he knew might be able to help. And he got there, and he was let down immediately. The disciples couldn't do anything. The disciples were unable, and now he's, he's taken what we so oftentimes do. We take the inability of ourselves and place that onto the, to Jesus and say, well, if I'm not able, then he's not able either. But he, he, he kind of repaints the image of Jesus with, with just inability so that even in his request, he, he doubts Christ's ability to help his particular situation. But the tenderness and kindness of Jesus is again on display. And Jesus probably had every right to walk away in frustration and, uh, and, and, and would have been fine. But that's not his heart. Instead of walking away in frustration, Jesus, in his compassion and his love, for this particular man and this little boy, he teaches him something. And he teaches him that ability, when it comes to Christ Jesus, is never a question mark. It's never, it's never, it's never a concern. Uh, it's never a variable. It never waxes or wanes. Ability, when it comes to Jesus, is certain. And so Jesus responds, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus is saying that, that the weak spot in this situation is not my ability. The weak spot in all of these circumstances that have come together here is not my ability. The weak spot is your faith. That's what fluctuates so much, right? That's what waxes and wanes so much. Our faith, our confidence in Christ to take care of us, both his ability to do so and his willingness to do so, is what, is what fluctuates so much even in our own hearts. 
Right? What we believe so wholeheartedly one day, right? that Jesus loves me and he's able to take care of me and he will do so, is the same thing that we wholeheartedly doubt on the next day. We're familiar with, intimately familiar with the situation of this father. We're, we're familiar with this pattern. Right? The pattern of, uh, of suffering comes. Right? So, something bad happens in life. It comes. I pray incessantly. And the Lord answers my prayer. Then I'm on a spiritual high. The Lord has taken care of me. He's been so good to me. And then a few days later, suffering comes. The Lord's not going to take care of me. Right? He's, he's going to let me down. He, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't, he's not going to hear my prayer. He's not going to listen to me. We're familiar what's, with what's going on here. But, but, but the Father's bruised and battered confidence in Christ has diminished to doubt in light of these previous circumstances. But Jesus doesn't leave him there again. Right? Jesus summons him to belief with his statement, all things are possible for the one who believes. And when challenged by Christ, again, he's brutally honest. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's little belief. That's little faith. But that's the kind of faith and belief that Christ uses. For the kind and compassionate Christ on display here who loves this man's soul, it's enough. And so it's worth pausing for just a few seconds here and just taking a mental picture of this Jesus, right? The one who, who remains faithful and, and, and shows by action his love and compassion for his people right here. It's worth just taking a mental picture of this and, 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 and storing it in the back of our minds for the next time that that pattern of suffering, prayer, deliverance, doubt comes again. It's worth taking a mental picture of that and, and uh, of this particular Jesus and, and telling ourselves next time that doubt arises. That's who Jesus is. Preach this Jesus to myself next time I'm doubting in the midst of my suffering. This is a Jesus who is tender and kind and compassionate and caring for his sheep, for you, his sheep. If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that means he's the same Jesus today that he was here in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And if he's kind and tender and caring and compassionate, we also know that he's a Jesus who enjoys having all spiritual ability intrinsic to himself. Right? Spiritual ability is Jesus. Right? He can do anything. He can do all things. And that's what Jesus does. We find out here that, to no surprise, that spiritual ability is natural to Jesus. And all he has to do is speak a command and the evil spirit obeys. Right? Jesus commands the evil spirit not just to leave the boy, but to leave the boy for good, forever. And it listens. It never enters him again, presumably. We get to watch Jesus here restore the boy back to life. Not, and not just the boy, but the father as well. Right, from looking 
the crowd points it out precisely. The boy looks dead after the exorcism. People are looking at that. That, that, that fellow's dead. But Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him up. He restores the boy to life. Spiritual ability is intrinsic to Christ. Ability is not a problem for him. And again, kind of reflecting back on our soteriology. Christ exhibits his spiritual ability from, from predestination all the way to glorification. He shows us that it is him who works. And in this particular narrative, he restores the boy to life who had lived in misery. He restores the father back to life who had literally been in pieces because of his son's brokenness. And again, that kind of ability only belongs to Christ. There may perhaps be someone, maybe a few here this morning who maybe are just as miserable or almost as miserable as the boy in this story. Maybe you're not possessed by a demon, but, but life is just terrible. It's distasteful. You feel like you have no control over anything whatsoever. That's true. It's a statement. You feel like you're being tossed to and fro and shifted around with no say whatsoever. Or maybe you're like the father, and perhaps given over to incessant anxiety and worry. You have no idea what's going to happen next. The sky's always falling. Let me tell you that the, the remedy for misery and anxiety is right in front of you this morning, and it's not right in front of us in the sense of a mirror. It's right in front of us here in this text. It's Christ. It's Christ who is the remedy for misery. It's Christ who is the remedy for anxiety and worry and not knowing what's going to happen next and always assuming the worst about what's going to happen next. Right? If Christ is my Lord and Christ is my Savior, then, then I know He's taking care of all of that. Right? All things work for good for those who love the Lord. Right? He's going to take it one way or the other. He's always going to take care of me. That's Christ. And so let me encourage you this morning to, to ask Him to take care of you. But just ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. It doesn't have to be pretty. Father's words surely aren't pretty. They're not all put together. They're not, uh, they're not the most precise theological statements that one could have dreamt of stating. It doesn't have to be that way. The Lord does encourage us to come to Him for mercy. Moving towards the end of the text, the last couple of verses of, of the text here, verses 28 and 29, uh, Jesus kind of moves from, Mark kind of shifts our attention from the father and the boy to the disciples and Jesus again. And so as Jesus and the disciples retreat into someone's home, the disciples want to know, you know, why weren't we able uh, to do what you just did? 
And Jesus points it, he points it out exactly, says, you know, this kind, this, this demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And uh, for those of you reading the ESV, you probably see the little footnote there um, that goes to the bottom of the page and adds, and fasting. Or if you're reading the KJV or NKJV, you know uh, that, that the and fasting uh, is already there in your text. I think probably the ESV actually gets it right here, um, considering the circumstances that the disciples were just in. Uh, they were approached by this father and the boy, um, and uh, they need help immediately. There's not really time to fast, uh, but there is time to pray. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Either way, with, either way the text works, uh, Jesus is making the same point, though. Jesus is not knocking the disciples for their desire. He's not knocking the disciples for their, their willingness to help. He's not knocking the disciples even for their drive. He could have before in other occasions, but not here. What Jesus is knocking and chiding the disciples for is just their self-reliance. He's getting at the fact that, that the reason you couldn't do this is because you tried to do it alone. This kind can only be cast out by much prayer. Kind of alluding back to the first part of the sermon, when, when they relied on themselves, that's when they went wrong. They messed up when they said, oh, I can do this, I, I'm fine, you know, my, my abilities, they're, they're good. I'm a gifted person, no problem. And the point that Jesus is making to the disciples with the whole thing is, especially right before he's about to die, if you notice context, he, he kind of notes that fact just after this text. The point that he's making is that without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. You must rely on me. And as we kind of head towards a conclusion here, Jesus is, is making the point with this miracle. He's not just performing another miracle. He's not just, uh, just healing someone else. He's done a lot of that in the first half of the book of Mark. Here, he's intentionally teaching his disciples a lesson that they have to learn. And it's that they cannot rely on themselves and carry out his ministry when he's gone. They cannot rely on themselves and carry out his ministry when they're gone or when he's gone. And so, as I think about today, Michael said preach a welcome sermon. I'm like, I don't know what, okay. But as we, as we think about how this text applies to both my ministry as it begins here, but also our ministry as a church as we kind of cross the threshold into a new chapter, this point exactly, I think, is the point that we have to to grab by the horns and hold on to. It's that may it never be that we rely on our own gifts as a church to do the ministry that Christ has called us to do. May it never be that, that prayer becomes just, just a rote exercise that we meet for a couple times a week to just do. May, we never, may it never be that, that, that just because you know, we have more, right? We're, we have elders in training. We have deacons in training. We're getting a new pastor. Uh, we're growing in square footage. We're growing in parking lot. We're growing in all these other things. 
But may it, may it never be that, that, that more becomes our Savior and not Jesus Christ. That more becomes the Lord of the church and not Christ himself. May we never confuse the Lord's gifts with the Lord's means of grace. May, it, uh, may we never confuse all, all the mores, again, for the power of the Holy Spirit and the work that only He can accomplish. Again, more elders doesn't mean better shepherding without the Holy Spirit's work. More deacons doesn't mean better hands, feet, and ministry without the Holy Spirit's help. More pastors doesn't mean better pastoring without the Holy Spirit's work. More money doesn't mean more fruit apart from the Holy Spirit's work. More square foot doesn't either. More parking lot doesn't mean more cars apart from the Holy Spirit's work. We must remember to rely on Christ. We must remember that it's the Lord who builds His church. We must remember that, it's, again, that spiritual ability is not something that's intrinsic to ourselves. Right? Spiritual ability belongs to Christ. Whatever spiritual ability I have is derivative from Him. It's because His Spirit is inside of me and He's choosing by His grace and mercy to work through me. And so, finally, how, how do we exhibit this? How do we put this into motion? Again, it's the simple application that Jesus points His disciples to. It's to pray. It's to pray for your elders the ones in training, the ones already in place, that the Lord would, would give us wisdom, that the Lord would give us understanding, the Lord would give us patience and love for you, the people that we can shepherd you and help you and hold your hand through whatever comes. It's to pray for your, your deacons, again, the ones that are in training, the ones who are already there, that we can continue to do hands, feet, ministry that exemplifies the gospel itself and so strengthens the body of Christ. We pray for our pastors that they themselves would be able to continue to grow in grace and, and love the Lord Jesus more so that we can love you better and take care of you better. We pray that the Lord would, would use his money, his square footage, his parking lot, do whatever he wills with it to bring his own self-glory. And let me just kind of point you back to the scripture reading and the confession of faith. The Lord loves to answer the prayer requests of his sheep. And he is overwhelmingly generous when he does so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, truly you are good. And truly your steadfast love does endure forever. We give you thanks, O Lord, that it that it is not uh, our abilities that we trust and that we must work out of in doing what you've commanded us to do. That you've willingly opened up yourself and says, I, I have everything that you need. And so, Lord, may we tap into that and couple ourselves to you and yoke ourselves to you that we might do what you have called us to do as a church and as a ministry. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.